This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome, welcome to, to the New Books Network, a podcast podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese, Sarah Tyson, and Malcolm Keating. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Tiger Roholt, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Montclair State University. His new book, Distracted from Meaning, a Philosophy of Smartphones, is just out from Bloomsbury Academic. Social scientists have long studied the ways in which smartphone use can distract us from the proper performance of means-ends tasks, such as driving or medical procedures. In his book, Rohl discusses a distinct type of distraction, when smartphone use interferes with our active engagement with meaningful experiences such as dinner with friends, or a musical performance, or gardening. In these cases, Rohal argues, we risk stunting the experiences that would otherwise give meaning to our lives, or even risk missing out on discovering new types of meaningful experiences. Rohal draws on writings from John Dewey, Susan Wolfe, Albert Borgman, and others in this engagingly written meditation on how ubiquitous uses of smartphones and wearable technologies affects our lives in ways that other types of interruptions do not. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Tiger Roholt. Welcome to New Books and Philosophy. Thanks for having me, Carrie. It's, this looks to be a very fun conversation about, about you know, smartphones or cell phones and, and uh, technology in general and how it affects our lives, and in particular, um, how it seems to interrupt uh, interrupt us from certain meaning-making experiences that we would otherwise have. Um, so distracted from meaning, right, as philosophy of smartphones. Um, maybe before we start getting into the book itself, tell us a bit about, you know, you, how you came to write the book, how you came to be interested in the particular topics that you are. Okay. Well, um, um, maybe I'll just start with uh, saying something about how I got interested in philosophy because it's, I guess it's not much of a story really, but it's interesting that uh, it's a, maybe it's a somewhat common way that I just had great teachers and it sort of fascinates me looking back that, that that really did it, that I had great teachers, but also teachers who were, um, also really serious philosophers, and I really like that combination. But about the project, um, it started with many 
perplexing experiences. Um, for a long while, I was occupied with the way that smartphones and cell phones earlier were being introduced into in-person situations. And so I started to notice um, the prevalence of smartphones in, you know, little at a little at a time in classrooms, in dinners with friends and family, in musical performances and other arts performances in a play or in stand-up comedy settings, um, live sporting events, even running and walking. And I sort of started to think about it and wonder when people, including me, get distracted by their phones in these various in-person situations, I started to wonder what exactly is happening. And and then maybe even more importantly, what's at stake and uh, what's the impact of that? I could say a little bit about my my other interest in philosophy that sort of shaped my approach, if you like. Uh, yeah, because you draw on a number of different, you know, traditions here and people that wouldn't, you know, aren't, it, at least for many analytic philosophers, um, you know, are, are, well, except for Susan Wolf, obviously. Um, so, yeah, you know, how, what, what sort of conditions your, your approach to the question you just raised? Yeah, it's true. It's true what you say. I am uh, interested in different kinds of philosophy. And I, I guess I sort of think of myself as having one foot in each tradition, the analytic and the continental, or at least that's how I aspire to be. And so this book, yeah, it does, uh, it does include um, a range of different philosophers from Susan Wolf and John Dewey to Albert Borgman and Hubert Dreyfus and some consideration of Heidegger and phenomenology in general. But um so I come at the project not only from the perspective of philosophy of technology, as one might expect, but also maybe surprisingly from the perspective of the philosophy of art and philosophy of music. And uh, the philosophy of art and music is actually surprisingly relevant to the project in the sense that um, one important issue in the philosophy of art and music is the active nature of experience. Um, the idea is often that in order to grasp artworks, one must, in a way, unlock their properties and structures and meanings through a kind of active engagement. So philosophers of art are often trying to elucidate what that active engagement comes to. And Dewey does this in Art as Experience. And it turns out that, uh, that active perceptual engagement is important regarding smartphone distraction from meaningfulness. Because in order for an activity to become meaningful for us, we have to actively engage with it. And I want to flesh out that engagement. But also, understanding smartphone distraction requires making sense of disruptions to our active engagement. And uh, so as we talk about the book, um, this notion of active engagement will pop up from time to time. Yeah, good, good. Um, so let me. So speaking of distractions, I mean, you mentioned running. You mentioned you know plays, you know various way, uh, various things that get distracted. Are there other 
Other things that also distract us, that disrupt us from the sorts of engagement that you're interested in besides smartphones? Yeah, well, there, I mean, clearly there are. I mean, if you just think about examples like, um, you know, being in a philosophy seminar, people have always been distracted by whisper conversations and doodling and various, you know, getting distracted from what's going on outside the window. Um, and in addition to these things, I also talk about um, being dis- the difference between being distracted uh, by laptops and tablets as opposed to uh, smartphones. And I do think there's something special going on with smartphones that has to do with the kind of often rehearsed perceptual and behavioral habits that we develop with smartphones that make the distraction uh, sort of, we have, there's sort of a pull we have into our smartphones that we're also a bit unaware of. And so I think it's kind of a special, a special example, uh, unlike some of these other more typical ones. Right. So, yeah, so that, I mean, you know, what is, why, you know, this particular form of distraction when there are, you know, obviously so many, um, is it, is it, is it the quality, you know, quality versus quantity? Is it, is it a quantity of distraction or a quality of the distraction? Well, that's an interesting way to put it. I mean, I think, I think part of what makes it unique is that, uh, well, I mean, to, t- to take an example uh, of what kind of um, structures and habits we have associated with smartphones of what I mean, I'm, just take a simple example of when we are looking at our smartphone and doing something like texting with a friend, uh, obviously uh, our smartphone and what's going on in the smartphone, the friend and what the friend is saying is in the perceptual foreground and everything in the background, uh, you know, things happening in the room you're in uh, are in the background. And obviously it's flipped when, you know, you're, if you're in a a philosophy seminar or at a, at a music show, um, you know, the music or the, what the professor is saying is in the foreground and other things are in the background. And what I think we're, we're, we're unaware of is the way this switch happens fast and forcefully and in a way that we're not aware of. And you, you mentioned quantity. And one of the issues I think is that uh, um, we rehearse these smartphone perceptual structures and habits so often and in so many different contexts that they become very ingrained and they're almost, uh, I like to think of them as kind of sticky. And so they're very difficult to control and adjust. You know, so if you think about it, that, uh, you know, we're used to texting while we're walking, on the couch, you know, in a class, on the bus. And so we have this kind of texting comportment uh, or just smartphone in general comportment, and it just snaps into gear. And we can sort of... Uh, see that sometimes when you're just uh, around people who are on their smartphones, they seem to sometimes disappear in a way that they don't even realize themselves they've disappeared. Uh, and sometimes they seem to lose time a little bit. Um, there's this, I, there's this uh, sociologist and psychologist, Sherry Turkle, who she kind of loosely associates the phrase, wait, what? 
with smartphone use in a way because uh you know if you she tells a story in one of her books about uh uh some students at a table having a conversation and and occasionally some students saying wait what because they missed something that was going on at the table because they were texting and it, there's something surprisingly unknown about uh this kind of moving in and out of this smartphone um you know comportment or behavior or attitude perceptual structure and by the way maybe i'll yeah go i'm ahead. sorry i'm just going to say by the way maybe i'll mention that the kinds of philosophers who write about this are robert rosenberger who draws from maurice merleau-ponty the sociologist jane vincent is very good on this stuff too right okay well let me i i mean i want to you know i i think i want to you know kind of circle back to the to the you know why is this you know kind of negative issue in a way because you you don't you know you're not a luddite or anything like that i mean you know so i i want to make that clear but um so what's um one of the what the you start by contrasting the sort of distraction that you're interested in uh you know the i don't know if you want to call it the depth um uh, with the sort of cell phone distraction that you know many social scientists have have uh, examined, um, you know, and you mentioned a number of you know uh, you know uses in medical, particularly medical situations where uh, you know people who should be paying attention to the patient in front of them are are texting or something like that, or driving is another one, right? Um, uh, and so, you, you know, you make a very interesting comment that, you know, these are all very well and good, you know, sorts of studies, but they're not going to get at the question that, that you're really interested in. Um, and can, can you explain why? Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, you, you mentioned it's true that I'm not a Luddite. Um, part of what's part of what I think motivated me to write about this is that I was having my own problems. I'm, you know, quite. I used my smartphone quite a bit and I really needed to try to understand what was going on with my own smartphone use. And then, you know, also at the end of the book, I really try to end with some positive thoughts about how we might integrate smartphones into our lives uh, in a way that's really productive. But so, yeah, I, I think my, my main issue is that as we bring smartphones into all of these in-person situations, uh, it strikes me that we don't really understand what's happening. And so I want to get a grasp of this. And you, you mentioned uh, some of the social science literature on smartphone distraction. And the way that, that they typically understand smartphone distraction is uh, a kind of case where your attention is pulled away from some in-person task where you miss some information or you make a mistake. So for example, if you're texting at a dinner, that results in failing to follow the conversation at the table. Or if you're in a classroom texting during a class, that results in missing some, some of what the professor says. Or if there's a nurse who's organizing pills into small cups, if the nurse is distracted by incoming texts, then he might misplace certain pills. And this is to understand the impact of distraction in terms of performance cost. And that's the kind of approach we find in the social science literature. And while that gets something right, 
I think it also misses something. And I can say even more about this after we talk about meaningfulness, but I can say something now, which is that um, neither meaningful situations themselves nor our engagement with them can be understood in terms of a task to be performed. Uh, more broadly, they can't be understood, if I'm right, in terms of means and ends. And so the approach to distract the approach to smartphone distraction based on performance cost uh, doesn't enable us and it doesn't enable us to understand what's happening when we're distracted by our phones and potentially meaningful in-person situations. So for me, instead of framing smartphone distraction in terms of performance cost, uh, I frame smartphone distraction in terms of interference with one's active engagement in meaningful activities, and then relatedly interference with the work we do to shape our self-identity. Okay, so now we're now we're getting into the the heart of the book. Um, so what is this? Yeah, what are what are these? What are these meaningful activities and our active engagement with it? Right. Okay. Well, yeah. Let's do. Let's talk about the the Susan Wolf's theory of meaningfulness, which is uh, a kind of you know I sort of think of it as a kind of linchpin uh, that, that comes in the middle of the book. I really love uh, Susan Wolf's theory of meaning in life, by the way. I mean, it's, it's a really bold and clarifying view. And what I want to do is, is just try to, try to add to it a bit. Um, so she says uh, that a good life has three dimensions, happiness, which she characterizes in terms of uh, hedonism. So, or the view of happiness she works with is something like maximizing pleasure, minimizing pain. The second dimension of a good life is a moral dimension. And the third dimension of a good life is meaningfulness. And then roughly, here's what she says meaningfulness is. Uh, for an activity to be meaningful, it must be objectively valuable. It must have some subjective value, which she means by this, that it must be subjectively fulfilling, or you must be passionate about it, you must be gripped by it. And she also says that uh, the objective and subjective value must be suitably linked. And then she also indicates that we can't be passively related to this. We have to be actively engaged in it. And interestingly, she shares some examples with uh, a philosopher I write about a lot in the book, uh, Albert Borgman, a philosopher of technology. They share some examples of what they take to be meaningful or significant activities. Uh, the ones they share in particular are playing music, carpentry, running, and gardening, which is such a fascinating collection of things. And yeah, maybe I'll pause there and see where you'd like to go next. No, keep going. Well, um, what I want to add to Susan Wolf's view of meaningfulness, and you know, I sort of can't do this in full until we maybe talk about some other things, but I'll give you a hint of what I want to add. Um, well, she notes that we have to be actively engaged in activities in order for them to be meaningful. 
she doesn't say much about what that comes to. So I want to try to fill out in the book what this notion of active engagement comes to. And I do that in part by talking about uh, Dewey's, John Dewey's notion of an experience. And uh, I see this active engagement as a kind of precondition for her necessary condition of subjective fulfillment. But then the other thing I want to do to augment her view is make some suggestions about how to understand her objective condition, because she acknowledges that she doesn't have uh, a theory of objective value. And that's, I mean, who's going to blame her for not having that? But I have a way of trying to, <laughs> she, what she ends up doing is actually kind of um, deciding that what's needed for a theory of meaningfulness is not some kind of platonic theory of objective value, but something lighter. But then she doesn't supply it. And I have something that I think I can extract from some things that Albert Borgman says in order to fill that out a little bit. Okay, well, um, uh, so maybe we should, you know, step back a moment to, you mentioned John Dewey and his account of, of an, you know, an experience. Um, so I think let's, let's introduce that part of it, I think. Yeah, okay. Um, well, maybe the way to, to begin to think about this is that engaging effectively in situations like seminars, and these are potentially meaningful experiences, seminars, musical performances, dinners with friends, these are perceptually and cognitively demanding activities that require attention to intricate and developing and related features of the situation. And Dewey, in his account of what he calls an experience, sets out uh, a view that has us interacting with the world in a detailed and developing way. And what I do is take some of the descriptive aspects of his account of an experience and leave to the side some of the more problematic features. And I call the conception I work with developed experience. And I can explain this actually, and here's some added value for the podcast. Here's an example that I don't discuss in the book. Um, and I can sort of explain Dewey's, what I do with Dewey by talking about this example of uh, callbacks in stand-up comedy. Um, and, you know, a callback is a kind of, in stand-up comedy, is a kind of a relational resonance between two different jokes or, you know, humorous anecdotes or stories. And, you know, so a stand-up comic might um, make a joke early in her set, and then 10, 15 minutes later, she might make another joke that is connected to that first joke. And uh, really grasping her set requires understanding not only that these two jokes are related, but how they're related. And Dewey emphasizes sort of the core of his theory of an experience is this idea that experience has phases and that there's a, what he calls a doing and an undergoing phase where the doing phase is a kind of exploratory perceptual phase. And in this case, maybe what it means is something like trying to make sense of a joke. Uh, so this doing phase can involve activity. Um, and the undergoing phase is a, uh, a kind of an experiential passive phase, which maybe involves something like, in this case, the humor landing for you in a way. 
But the part of this that he emphasizes, which I really like, is that he says that these phases of doing and undergoing are related. And we have to not only, well, we have to be aware of these relations. And what I like about what this aspect of his view is that, you know, in order to grasp a callback, uh, we need to be aware of the relations of this developing experience. And, uh, you know, and I think I, I discuss examples in the book like this callback example where relations, being aware of relations is essential, like musical examples of emerging general properties and some other things. But you can also maybe think of uh, inference in philosophical discussions where grasping an inference requires being aware of relations. And anyway, uh, big picture here, um, what's at risk when we're distracted by our phones is that these developing experiences get stunted or cut off, and then we miss these connections between different phases of experience. And uh, that's, with Dewey, that's what I really want to uh, use his view to uh, explore. Okay, so um, so the idea, let me just to, to clarify, is that um, in these, in the, there are moments, uh, or or more than moments. I mean, you know, it, it, you know, ex, you know, a periods of time of various lengths um, where we are appropriately sorts of engaged in in what we're doing or, um, or some sort of activity. And, uh, um, these sorts of engagements are not means ends kind of engagement, but they have a different sort of structure that gets in some sense destroyed when you, when it's interrupted with a cell phone or smartphone use. Is that, that's the idea? Yeah, that's great because, um, you know, if you think about the example of the nurse organizing pills into cups, if he gets distracted by a text, he can, if he, if he recognizes that he was distracted and made a mistake, he can correct it. And so this performance cost model of smartphone distraction uh, explains that kind of situation. But, but what Dewey says is that... Um, all of these parts of, experience, of the experience, I mean, he has a couple of other concepts that maybe help explain this. He has this idea that, that an experience, as it's developing, takes on a kind of perceptual quality that emerges and develops as the experience develops. And he thinks that really complete experiences end in a kind of consummation, which has a quality that has emerged from this whole developing process. And so... Yeah, the way that you put it is nice because while the nurse can stop and make a correction, if you're having a developing experience, you can't make a correction. If it's interrupted, you just have to start over again. It's just it, the experience just uh, is ended because, um, yeah, there's no there's no distinguishing means and ends in the same way. Right, right. Um but so then what is it about, so are these, um, so what's the connection to 
you know, sort of the meaningfulness of all life. Maybe that's, that's the bit, um, uh, you know, so yeah, we get interrupted in means ends ways. We also disrupt as you, you know, which is a better word than interrupt, disrupt the creation of these other types of experiences. Um, Presumably these things rather than, or in addition to the means ends types of experiences have a, have a particularly uh, important role in creating meaning for ourselves for life. Right. Is that so? Right. Yeah. Right. And uh, well, yeah. And so, one direct way that I try to connect Dewey to this issue of meaningfulness is that one of Susan Wolf's necessary conditions for meaningfulness is subjective fulfillment or uh, being passionate about an activity. And my view is that you can't become passionate about an activity if you have mostly stunted experiences with that activity. You have to have some experiences that that unfold and develop in an organic way and are not interrupted or disrupted. You know how, it, I mean, I often think about the example, which I also didn't mention in the book for some reason, but um, when you're reading philosophy, it often doesn't get rewarding until you've been doing it for 10 minutes or 15 minutes or 20 minutes, it really starts to build. But if you just do it for five or 10 minutes, uh, it doesn't, it, it doesn't land for you in the way that it, uh, uh, that it does later. And so there's something important about meaningful activities that, that you be engaged and not just for short periods. It's not the kind of thing that you can, a meaningful experience is not the kind of thing that you can check in and out of. Even just take the example of stand-up comedy. If if a stand-up comedian has a really rich set that involves, uh, you know, observations that lead you to think about the world and your place in it, and the stand-up comic has really developed a persona, and you know, it's more like an art performance. Um, checking in and out of that set where you get distracted will prevent you from understanding all sorts of things that are happening in the set and callbacks is, you know, a really specific example where if you, if you happen to not hear the second joke, you won't even understand that there was a callback. So yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say that maybe, maybe a way to, to say more about the other aspect of what you were trying to get me to say is, um, something more about how this kinds of performance cost mean means and approach uh, is not suitable for understanding meaningfulness. And I guess then one of the next steps of trying to make sense of that for me is looking at Albert Borgman's focal things and practices. Yeah. Go Yeah. I was, that was sort of my next, my next question. Cause he's the, the, the last piece you might say of the whole package. Yeah. And um, uh, maybe, you know, I wonder if before I do that, I should say something more specific about what what kind of smartphone distraction I'm really talking about, just to just to sort of clear up the idea that 
I think when most people think about multitasking, they might assume that they're doing two things at the same time. And, uh, you know, I think this has been more or less debunked by psychologists that what's really happening when you're, when you're using a smartphone while in an in-person situation, what's really happening is that you're task switching and, uh, task switching is more of a problem when the tasks you're switching between are not complementary. So for example, a kind of example of a complementary set of tasks maybe is if you're filling out forms at the DMV while you're texting with a friend, there's no real tension there. I mean, you can stop filling out forms for a minute to read the text and there's no real problem there. But if you're texting with a friend while you're listening to a philosophy lecture and trying to take notes, um, task switching really is a problem. And so, so what I, what I'm really trying to, I mean, and then the point is obviously that, that what I'm trying to focus on is task switching where there's some smartphone activity while you're trying to participate in an in-person meaningful project or activity. And that's what I'm really worried about. Um, but anyway, so Albert Borgman, um, he, so he's a philosopher of technology and, and uh, within his philosophy of technology are these really interesting ideas of focal practices and focal things. And that's what I really try to, I guess I talk about a bunch of different aspects of his philosophy of technology in the book, but, but these are the, are two ideas that I like a lot that I can get a lot of mileage out of. And so Borgman, following Hubert Dreyfus and uh, ultimately Heidegger, encourage us to understand potentially meaningful activities as situated within practices. Uh, and so again, I'm talking about activities like a dinner with friends or a musical performance or a philosophy seminar. And I am sort of adding something to Borgman here that, uh, that uh, I describe what I'm adding in the book. But this means at least when you situate meaningful activities within practices, it at least means that the activities are framed in a way by standards and norms and traditions. Um, and Borgman also thinks not only that we can understand some of these meaningful activities, uh, I mean, full disclosure, he doesn't use the word meaningful. He uses the term, he uses the phrase ultimately significant. And there are, I think, some interesting Heideggerian reasons why he doesn't like to, but I won't go into it. But the other thing, in addition to focal practices, Borgman uh, uses this, this concept of focal things. And he thinks, he believes that there are certain things that are of particular importance in these meaningful activities, these focal practices. And his examples are things like um, in the focal practice of music, or playing music or musical performance, the focal thing is the musical instrument. In the focal practice of a dinner with friends, the focal thing is a meal. And maybe uh, in the focal practice of a philosophy seminar, uh, the focal thing is a philosophy text. I'm adding to Borgman again. Um, but maybe, should I say a little bit? Should I keep talking about Borgman? I, I can try to fill this out a little bit because it's kind of, I guess it's a bit murky so far. Um, so, uh, so here are a few features of focal things. Maybe this will help. 
He says that focal things are the material anchors of focal practices, that they make demands on us, and importantly for me, they connect a context. And so the idea is something like a guitar, a musical instrument, connects the context of musical performance by, you know, you can imagine if, if you play guitar, you, you establish connections to other musicians through your instrument. You establish connections to the audience through your instrument. You even establish connections to guitarists of the past through your instrument. So this is the kind of connecting to a context that focal things do, according to Borgman. And when he talks about focal practices, what he means is that these focal practices safeguard or preserve focal things. I mean, ultimately what he's talking about is uh, he's worried about what he calls technological devices, um, replacing focal practices. So he's worried about things like, um, I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to interpret and update uh, Borgman here. Um, he's worried about things like Spotify replacing musical performance or microwavable food replacing a dinner with friends. And so he has this idea that focal practices safeguard these focal things. And then they also frame our engagement and they, they encourage us to engage with focal practices and focal things um, as ends in themselves and not uh, in a means end way. And in the one of the big claims he makes is that focal pride, and this really comes close to not only saying something about meaningfulness, but also saying something about self-identity, which I discuss at near the end of the book. He says that focal practices can center our lives, center and illuminate and orient our lives. And that's, I mean, there's something kind of reasonable about this idea that if you're really committed to um running, let's say, I mean, running is, is uh, something that he takes to be a focal practice. Then if you're really committed to it, I mean, I was for years, a terrible runner who was always distracted by things when I ran and just whenever I would talk to a real runner, it would, it would occur to me what a terrible runner I am. And when I would talk to a real runner, they would talk about how so many parts of their lives were, you know, shaped by keeping their body in the right condition and their lungs. And, you know, they were so, uh, they would orient different parts of their lives toward this practice of running. And you can think the same thing with someone who's a, you know, musician or a, you know, philosopher that uh, being engaged in a certain kind of focal practice can really have, provide a kind of center for your life. And um, yeah, so that's, that's, what I get from Borgman. Um, I mean, so the obvious sort of question is why can't smartphones be focal things and texting be a focal practice? Yeah. Well, one, maybe a preliminary thing I would say is that I, I don't claim that you can't have a meaningful experience with your smartphone. I mean, I, I, I believe I'm, I'm not trying to uh, to claim that there's no meaning to be had in smartphones. What I am uh, concerned about is that I, I, and here's a sort of a big, big, ridiculous general claim in a way, but I'm concerned 
that it would be a bad idea for us to replace all of our in-person meaningful experiences with virtual ones. Uh, I don't think it's a good idea to replace dinners with friends. I mean, actually, it's it's kind of interesting that that through the pandemic and maybe after the pandemic, we've experienced what it's like to replace in-person philosophy seminars with Zoom seminars. And and I don't think, while there are some advantages and while it can be interesting in some ways, I don't think we want to do that with everything. I don't think we want to replace smartphone meaning. We don't want to replace in-person meaning with smartphone meaning. So that's sort of the first thing I would say. And then, you know, at the end of the book, um, I try to suggest that um, by using this particular concept that Boardman has, I try to make the case that there is a way to use our smartphones if we can get a grip on our perceptual structures and get some control of the way that we interact with them, um, that there's a way to use smartphones to support focal practices, uh, to support meaningful activities. But it would have to be not, we, we, wouldn't, we would have to prevent off-task smartphone use. You know, if you're using your smartphone at a musical performance in order to scroll Instagram, you know, that's off task. If you're, um, if you're in a philosophy seminar and you're using your smartphone in order to, to look up the, the meaning of a word that's being mentioned, maybe that's on task. And although there's still a problem with it, um, I, I use these examples at the end of the book, like, um, uh, you know, when I'm, working on some writing project, I like to walk a lot and I like to, uh, even though it probably looks ridiculous to people around me, I like to sort of take notes <laughs> by speaking into my phone <clears throat> uh, or my AirPods. And, um, and so maybe that's a way that, uh, you know, using a smartphone as a, um, a voice recorder is maybe a way to help maybe to foster support certain focal practices. So I go that far as to suggest that, that uh, that that's possible, and in, to do that, I use a concept that Borgman raises but doesn't discuss much, which he calls technological instruments, and these are to be distinguished from technological devices, which you know have which break down focal practices. And he, his example of a technological instrument, which in the book I call technological paraphernalia for different reasons, but his example of a technological instrument is running shoes. And he says that that's a sort of a, you know, high tech object that can foster or support the focal practice of running. And I, and so at the end of the book, I try to make the case that maybe there's a way to understand how smartphones can function as a technological instrument. So, um, so what you what you said about you know virtual you know VR versus you know in person and the whole you know what pandemic what the whole pandemic situation kind of revealed in a in a way to a lot of people about you know in person interaction versus interaction via some sort of device. Um, how much? How many of these meaningful experiences? do we need or should we expect to have 
to have a meaningful life. I mean, even if you're right about everything and there is a disruption, um, we have lots of stunted experiences that otherwise would be, would count among the meaningful ones. And so we have fewer meaningful ones. Um, and that means that there's less, I don't know, you know, maybe we're, I don't know if that means that, you know, our lives are less meaningful to us, or if it's just that we get meaning from different things, or we don't need as many meaningful experiences as we thought we did. Um, so I'm, so I'm trying to, you know, really, no, I think it's a great question. You, I mean, yeah, I'm trying to press you on exactly how bad this is. And, and let me, let me just to give you a, 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 an example type thing. So, you know, once on the travel, I will often, you know, I'll stay at a hostel and it's usually with, you know, young people in their, you know, you know, teens, twenties, whatever. Um, and I've noticed that, uh, you know, most of them will, will, they'll be in the dorm room and each of them will be on their devices connected with their people at home, right? Their friends and family at home. So in a way, they've never really left wherever they're from. That's fascinating. <laughs> because they're yeah. still very connected. And that's a very different thing from the way it used to be where, you know, if you go to place and you're you're at a hostel it's like you are just not in your world you know the one that you live in you're something else and there's all kinds of adjustment and you know the you know widening of one's experience and all that kind of you know stuff that people talk about and i notice oh okay well then you know i guess people aren't you know young people aren't getting that you know ex mind expansion or whether or you know that you know maybe 20 30 years ago people traveling in the same you know, situation would be forced to kind of be on their own devices, make new friends, look at the new world, etc. So there's definitely a, a sort of a stunting going on that seems to be of the sort that you would, you know, say, you know, there's, there is stunted experiences going on here. But then I was thinking, well, okay, but are they really worse off? Because it just could be that, you know, maybe the difficulty of being on your own in a strange country isn't, you know, I mean, it's great. It expands you in certain ways, but it, you know, people who don't have that or who, for whom it's stunted, they don't necessarily have, you know, less meaningful lives, you know? I mean, so I'm trying to get at exactly what, even if our structure, the structure of current experiences is altered in, you know, in just the ways that you imagine, does that mean that, you know, we're not getting enough, you know, nourishment, so to speak, to the soul? Yeah, that's a great, I love that question. I mean, that's, um, that's really interesting. And well, okay. I have two, two main thoughts about this. Um, one is that in a way smartphones save us a lot of time um it's funny because even though i'm i'm sort of a strange person who sort of enjoys uh even faculty meetings oh, this is really oh no uh, odd <laughs> but i sort of like the kind of in person uh the in person dynamics of a faculty meeting anyway 
But clearly, doing faculty meetings and other kinds of committee meetings on Zoom is a time saver. And what could be wrong with saving time in ways like that in order to invest that time in something that you choose that's meaningful for you? Um, so uh, I don't think there's any sort of demand on anyone that they try to make every possible experience a meaningful one. And I think actually um, that, I mean, I just agree with, with Borgman on this, but Borgman makes a, a very interesting point that, uh, you know, while he's critical of what he calls technological devices, he's very clear about the fact that these are time-saving pieces of technology, you know, washing machines and furnaces we don't have to go cut down wood and, you know, create a fire every time we need to get warm. Um, and so he's, he, so he thinks, so part of his view, which I uh, think he's right about is that many kinds of technology free up our time so that we can invest our time in particular kinds of meaningful experiences that we choose. And it could just be one. I mean, it could just be that you're so committed to, playing music that you use all the technology you can to save time and everything else in your life so that you can just play music. Um, and, but now here's the downside uh, regarding smartphones, I think, is that if you, so I, so I'm, I'm, I'm in full agreement there. First, first of all, with, with what you were saying that, that uh, there's nothing, there's nothing that suggests that, that people need to, have X number of meaningful activities in their lives. It could just be one or two, you know, but, but here's my worry, which is that, you know, so I, I talk about active engagement and the importance of active engagement. I mentioned that I see it as a, the kind of active engagement that I developed through John Dewey's notion of an experience. I see it as a precondition for subjective fulfillment for Wolf's subjective fulfillment. And what that means is, that I argue that if you don't engage with an activity actively and in a dedicated way where you're not interrupting yourself all the time, then you can't be subjectively fulfilled. So what I worry about is that if, if we as smartphone users get into these habits where we are pretty much throughout the day intermittently distracted by our smartphones, including just notifications. And by the way, I'm, I, in the book, say that I, I mean to say the same thing about um, wearables. So I'm also talking about you know, notifications and smartwatches and whatever. But if, if we allow ourselves to develop this way of engaging with activities where we are intermittently all through the day interrupted by our smartphones, then it's possible that we will never be engaged in an active and focused way in activities. And it could be that we will never discover that certain activities are potentially meaningful for us. I mean, another way to put it is you won't know that you're passionate about music or philosophy or psychology unless you give it a chance and giving it a chance means to actively engage in a dedicated way where you allow those experiences to develop. And if you're constantly distracted, um, 
you might never know that 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 was an opportunity to find something that would have occupied a very important place in your life. So that's the sort of so my sort of worry. So my sort of suggestion, at, my sort of practical suggestion, uh, somewhere in the book, is that we really need to uh, give things a chance by giving giving things that whenever we're in an in-person situation that's potentially meaningful, we should give it a chance by giving it our attention to see if we can become passionate about it. And if not, okay. If it's not something that we're gripped by ultimately, then take a shortcut and you know use some technology to avoid uh, investing all your time in that thing. You know, not, I mean, and... Yeah, so I guess that's my that's my point. That's one of my worries about uh, about smartphone distraction. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm still not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm. I'm persuaded by your account. I'm. I'm. I'm just not qu- quite sure how much it will. You know. I mean, it certainly does disrupt the experiences that you are talking about. I mean, I think we've both had experiences of, of that sort where others are using phones or wearables and, you know, an experience, but of course, you know, that then, then it kind of switches the other way where, you know, the, the, the Apple watch, you know, stops beeping and, and then you're, you know, you're in your, in your engagement, active engagement, um, it hasn't been shattered. Um, and, and you, you do this over time. Uh, so I see what you're getting at. Yeah. I mean, but I'm thinking, I mean, here's a very simple way to put what I'm saying is that, you know, notifications in a way are solicitations to off task activity. So when you receive a notification in some sort of in-person setting, it's calling on you to to engage in some off-task activity. And my simple worry is that if you are at a stand-up comedy performance and you get a notification just before the stand-up comic delivers her second joke that's going to constitute a callback... Uh, then you miss an important aspect of that set, and uh, you know if if that's if that happens at 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 the first few stand up comedy shows you go to, you might not be gripped by stand up comedy because you've missed some of the emerging subtle features of that activity, that uh, art form. Hmm. Okay, fair enough. Um... Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I sort of wonder what, you know, what our students or, you know, you know, people in their teens or in their twenties, you know, sort of how, how, how they respond since they've grown up with this stuff, you know, um, you know, their, their lives have never been without all kinds of wearables and smartphones and things. Um, well, let me, I mean, I think we're, we're running kind of time. So let me, let me just, um, let me just end with a with a question about uh, what your next steps are. Are you are you following up this book with a you know um, you know something along the same lines, or are you pursuing a different research project altogether? I mean, what's on what's on your immediate horizon? Yeah, I'm kind of still gripped by some of this. I mean, I'm I I seem to be uh, 
increasingly interested in the meaningful side of this project. Um, and so uh, um, I wrote a piece um, for the APA blog that's coming out uh, in a month or so uh, about meaningfulness in smartphones. And the way that I approach meaningfulness there was through the notion of practices in general and not focal practices and focal things. And I started getting very interested in philosophers like Charles Taylor and Alistair McIntyre. And so what I'm writing right now is something about meaningfulness, not about smartphones, but about meaningfulness and uh, drawing on philosophers like uh, Alistair McIntyre. Great. Okay. Well, I look forward to reading the blog and um, I wish you luck with the, with your next steps in this um, very interesting area. Very, very contemporary as well. So thank you very <laughs> Thanks much. Thanks so for much, Karen. I really, yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you, Karen. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Tiger Roholt, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Montclair State University. We've been talking about his new book, Distracted from Meaning, A Philosophy of Smartphones, which is just out from Bloomsbury Academic. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.